Um, we're going to pray, and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. It is somewhat of a difficult passage, so we're going to pray and ask for the Lord's help, and we're going to trust that he's going to give it. So let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, you speak to us through your word, and I'm asking for double revelation right now. You have given us your revelation. You have opened your mouth, and you have spoken, and we have your words in front of us. And now I'm asking for you to reveal your revelation to us. Open our eyes to see the truth of your word. Help us to understand the difference between a person's word and your word. And help us to respond. Thank you that there is absolute truth that you have spoken and we can trust that what you say is true. So help us to lay down what we think and what we feel and pick up what you think and what you feel this morning. Speak, God, your servants are listening. We thank you for your provision even here this morning. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of the things that I love doing when, when I preach is just simply preaching through books of the Bible, and I love that, that Russ and Andy are on board with that as well. Uh, it's not the only way to preach faithfully, but for us, we found it to be the, the, the best way for us to do it. Uh, I'm not all that creative, and so if I had to come up with something new to preach every week or, or uh, even feel the leading of the Holy Spirit to, to do one particular thing that week, I, I, I simply don't know... Uh, I think you'd hear the same thing every single week, to be honest, or every other week. And I would end up preaching a lot of passages that I'm really familiar with. So one of the reasons I love preaching through books of the Bible is that it forces me to get into some passages that make me grow and learn. I hope I'm not alone in this, but I am a toddler in the faith, as we say week in and week out. I'm learning, and so are you, I think. And so when I am uh, preaching through books of the Bible, it forces me into passages that I would not normally preach. And so I don't want to go through my entire, entire ministry just avoiding passages in favor of passages that I, I like a little bit better. I want to be bumped up against, uh, bump against some things that require me to wrestle and to pray and that require you to wrestle and to pray through those things as well. And so that's one of the reasons I love through preaching books of the Bible. Uh, another reason I love preaching through a book of the Bible is that it's pretty easy to follow. Generally speaking, you kind of know where it's going to be the next week, where we're going to be the next week. And so you can be following along and studying as well. You have your personal Bible study, but you can also be looking ahead and reading ahead and studying ahead what we're going to be going through the next Sunday. So I love that. Um, and, uh, and so today is just one of those Sundays where if, if we weren't preaching through books of the Bible, we, we may just never actually hear about a verse like this. We just may avoid it entirely because it has all this, this baggage that comes with it, uh, both culturally, historically, and we've got to try to navigate what the passage is actually saying. So uh, we've already prayed and trusted the Holy Spirit's going to do that. So without any further ado, we're going to read the passage, and then we're just going to walk through it together like we do every week. So look at Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be reading from verse 5 down through verse 9. Bond, bond servants... Or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as, the, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the first word uh, in the passage requires some explanation. The first word is bondservants. Some of your translations may say slaves. In fact, that is the, 
The word, and some translations translate it bondservants for the sake of some of the cultural baggage that comes with it. Um, but the passage is directly talking about slaves and masters. But we've got to do some unpacking a little bit because the Bible here doesn't just simply outright, outright uh, abolish all forms of slavery. So we've got to ask some questions about slavery and then answer some of those questions. And so I have six comments on slavery that I want to talk about before we get into the passage um, that may be helpful for us to try to navigate some differences between uh, first century Roman slavery and modern American colonial slavery, and then some of the forms of slavery that we have around the globe today when it comes to sex slavery, when it comes to all sorts of slavery that still exists today. We just got to get through some of the baggage because there's been some horrific tragedies and travesties uh, down through the ages when it comes to slavery. And we don't want to uh, say in any way that the Bible would give any credence whatsoever to those forms of slavery. So we just got to do a little bit of work before we get going here. So six comments on slavery that differentiates uh, the slavery that this is talking about and slavery that we may be more familiar with, uh, mainly American colonial slavery from uh, several hundred years ago. Uh, number one, slaves and masters in this context worshipped together as members of the same local body of Christ. Already, we see a differentiation between modern American colonial slavery and this slavery here in the scriptures. The dignity of the slave and the master worshiping together as the same, part of the same body of Christ, as a brother and sister in Christ. It's pretty powerful. In fact, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says this, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Meaning... Both the slave and free and the body of Christ in, first in, or in Ephesus were looked at by God. Later we see God shows no partiality. God sees equal personhood for both the slave and the master. Talk about turning the world's system upside down. In a world that sees order and value based on position, God says, I don't see any partiality here. I see value and dignity and personhood. And so we see a pretty interesting distinction. Slaves and masters worshiping together as the same body of Christ. The slave may be overlooked in the world, but not by God, which is incredible. God gives the dignity to first century slaves of speaking to them, which is pretty powerful. Two, second comment about slavery is that this sort of slavery was not primarily racial. It is different from the slavery that we are familiar with in our brutal history in our country. In fact, John Stott, a commentator on Ephesians, says this about slavery in that day. Slavery seems to have been, a un been universal in the ancient world. A high percentage of the population were slaves. It's been computed that in the Roman Empire, there were nearly 60 million slaves, almost one-third of the population, which is pretty interesting. They constituted the workforce and included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but educated people as well as doctors, teachers, and administrators. Slaves could be inherited or purchased, acquired in a settlement or, or a bad debt. They also could willingly go into slavery to pay off a debt that they had and that they had no way of paying so they could bring themselves into voluntary slavery. Slaves could be inherited, purchased, acquired, settled, settlement of a bad debt. Uh, prisoners of war were com would commonly become slaves, and nobody challenged this arrangement. The institution of slavery was a fact of the Mediterranean economic life. So that's an interesting thing to think about when uh, almost a third of the population was slave. It was not primarily an ethnic thing. It was not primarily a racial thing. It was bigger and broader than that. It was a part of the very system of how things operated in the ancient world. 
Three, the Bible condemns taking slaves by force. So the more familiar slavery that we are, the more the slavery that we are more familiar with, uh, the Bible does specifically condemned, condemn that sort of slavery. So for anybody to take somebody unwillingly out of their home, out of their environment, out of their culture, and bring them by force into another environment and into slavery, the Bible explicitly condemns. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8-11 through 11 says this, Now we know that law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down just for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers and fathers, for murderers, for sexual immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. To be an enslaver, your identity being one of somebody who takes people and brings them into bondage and then sells them as property, the Bible explicitly condemns. It's important to note that. Number four, statement four. Uh, there is an interesting thing that the scriptures do because the, the scriptures paint um, a, a, an upside-down way of the kingdom like this. Uh, there is a slavery that looks like freedom and then a freedom that looks like slavery. The Bible actually calls us, as believers, all slaves of Christ. And the Bible also calls us sons and daughters of God. And there is no contradiction here. We are slaves and we are sons and daughters of God. And we are slaves who have the purest form of freedom in the entire world. There is a pseudo-freedom in the world or a, a, a freedom that is really, really, it's, it's, it's not true freedom at all that says I'm my own person and I don't have anybody telling me anything to do. I, I am the master of my own fate, the captain of my own soul, and I'm in charge of my life. And the Bible says that actually is bondage. But the Bible says that if we're in Christ, we're slaves of Jesus and we are set free. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 is for freedom that Christ has set you free. This is a different sort of slavery. So the Bible uh, gives all Christians a shared identity as slaves to Christ. It's interesting that that language is used. Paul says this about himself in Romans chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, a bond servant, a servant of Jesus Christ or a slave. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, You are not your own, you were bought with a price. We are in the possession of another as believers in Jesus. Bond servants, sons and daughters in this room of the living God. Five, fifth comment on slavery. God gave eternal value and eternal rewards to the work of a slave. The slave was not to work, we're going to see here in a little bit in this passage, the slave was not to work for his master alone, but for his master behind the master, God, the God of the universe. He's to work for his master, Jesus Christ. The slave may have, went, may have gone underappreciated by an earthly master, but he is never overlooked by the God of the universe. So God turned the whole system of slavery upside down. The slave is to work for Christ as his ultimate master. And then we see in verse 8 and 9 in this passage today two things that are going to broaden this passage out and it's going to bring it out of first century slavery and it's going to bring us into 21st century employment. And we're going to see how this passage is for all of us in here, for anybody in here who is both an authority, like a boss, and to anybody in here who has an authority, has a boss. So employers and employees. So it's going to touch us all in here because the passage is going to say that this is not just for slaves and masters, it's for everybody. Because in the end, we're all either employed or 
an employer or self-employed or do some sort of work, even if you stay at home, there is work to be done. So here's what verse 8 and 9 say in Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 8 says this, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So this is about work, working for the Lord, whether you are a bondservant or free. And that means for everybody in here that there is work to be done, and we in this room are to see ourselves as working for the Lord, not for men. So for everybody. The second thing that shows us that this is for everybody and how we're going to bring this passage into employees and bosses is in verse 9 when it says that there is no partiality with God. That he is, verse 9 says, masters do the same. So the things that were commanded to the bondservants, the masters are to do the same. Work for God and not for man. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So this is for masters and servants in the first century, and now it's for us here in the 21st century, everybody in this room. It's, it's, it's bigger than just slave culture and master culture in the first century. Okay, So it's for all of us. So now we're going to be talking about specifically employees and bosses. We're going to be talking about the nature of work. Why do we do what we do vocationally? Who do we work for? And this passage is going to show primarily two root reasons that humans do work. What are the two root motives for the work of the believer? Or, excuse me, people in general. There's two ways to work. In our society today, and for many of you, we have stumbled into work confusion. We don't know why we work. Well, we've got to have money. We've got to, so why do we have to have money? Well, we have to provide for our children. Why do we have to provide for our children? Because the scriptures command us to provide for our children, and our children cannot provide for themselves. And if we don't have children, you have to provide for yourself. You have to have food. So, okay, there's reasons why we work. But what are the ultimate reasons behind work? So let's look first at the wrong way to work. And this is the most common view of work in our society and sadly in the Christian heart as well. The first way, the wrong way, has three primary ways it gets worked out. One, there is working for the attention of others. Two, there is working as a people pleaser. And three, there is working for your own glory. Look at verses five through seven. Bond servants, obey your masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Okay, that's the right way. We're going to get to that at the second point here in a minute. Verse 6, not by way of eye service, so that's the, wrong, that's the first part of the wrong way to work, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, second wrong way to work, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. So it's good to work for the Lord, but it's not good to work for primarily for man or for the glory of man, for the glory for people being pleased by what you do and then you receiving glory for that and then feeling good for that glory that you're receiving for them. So here's how it goes. First, we work for the attention of others. That's the wrong way to work, but it's so common. It's a disease that we see everywhere. It's, it's so common to the genetics of human beings that it's almost impossible to detect. But work to please the eyes of others happens in simple ways like this. When I worked for Papa John's, I, uh, when I was in college... I was a pizza delivery boy, made good money, actually made about 15 bucks an hour, so that was nice, but gas was like $4 a gallon then, so that was horrific. Um, 
And funny story, it was in the wintertime there, the heat went out in my truck, I didn't have any heat, and then, so it was freezing cold, and then the windows, if I rolled the windows down at all, and oh yeah, by the way, the vent was stuck on full blast, I couldn't somehow get the vent off, and if I rolled the windows down, or then or if I put pizzas in there, the whole thing would fog up, so I had to roll the windows down, so in the middle of the winter, I had my windows down so it wouldn't steam up, the vent blowing, and no heat, it was horrible. So there was my, uh, I walked uphill two ways in the snow story when I was younger in college. But uh, so when we worked for Papa John's, you know, you're delivering pizzas. And when you're back at the store, you're wanting to get out because when, you, when you're driving, you're by yourself. You're listening to your music, you know, MXPX, stuff like that. Um, and you're just driving around and having a great time. When you're back at the store, you actually have to work. And so what you would do is you would stand in the back and you'd fold boxes. Fold boxes. Uh, meaning you would hold a box until the boss came around the corner, and then when the boss came around the corner, you would fold the box like you had been folding the whole time. Because there were eyes now watching you, and you wanted to see those eyes be pleased with you, so when the boss would come around, you would work a little bit harder. Now, that's a funny collegiate work story, but as we grow older, we find ourselves working for the eye service of others in more specific and sophisticated ways. Here's how it works out in pastoral ministry working by way of eye service. Pastors, me, I am tempted to appear busy, so I will impress your eyes. I am tempted to throw out how much work I've done this week, or how much study I've done this week, or how many people I've met with this week, so I will please you. Working for the eyes of other people. When other people's eyes are upon you, you want to make sure that you are putting your best front out. So you are working so their eyes will be pleased with you. So many of you may do that same thing. You may feel like, okay, I, I understand what that means. When the boss shows up, I work a little bit harder. Why? But that is a common, common thing. Second way this uh, wrong way of work works itself out is for people pleasing. So work becomes, becomes your outlet to impress other people. If people are pleased by your work, well then, you're pleased. Your pleasure is dependent upon your success of pleasing other people. If other people look at your work and they stand and look at it with reverence and awe, you feel significant. You feel like you can puff your chest out a little bit. Even if you don't do that, internally you are. You feel this euphoria that comes over because people are affirming the value of your work, living as a people pleaser. And work is a good thing. In fact, God put man in the garden to work and keep it. Work is a good thing. So we're not saying work is a bad thing, and I'm not. This passage is not saying that. But it is specifically saying that the slaves in that first century context and employees here can work in such a way that's only trying to please people so they can get pleasure themselves as a people pleaser. Your pleasure comes only to the degree that others are impressed or pleased with you. So your euphoria about your work is only to the level that other people are pleased. If, if people are just sort of pleased with your work that day, your joy level is at the sort of joy level that day. If people are in awe of your work that day, you walk home and you just can't wait to tell your wife, you can't wait to tell your friends, you can't wait, you just go home thinking about how successful you were that day because you're working and living for the pleasure of people. But the pleasure of people we all know is like shifting sand because there the day comes, somebody's a jerk because people are jerks. My goodness, you're a jerk. Uh, I mean, we're all jerks at some point. 
uh, if you're living for the pleasure of people, there's going to be that Thursday that things go terrible and you're crushed because of it because you're working for their pleasure and you now cannot go home in the evening and have any pleasure yourself because you're devastated. Your value was not seen and you feel about that big. Okay, working for the pleasure of others. Have you been there? Think about the false gospel of people-pleasing. When people are happy with us, think about how much joy fills our heart. Heroin has no high like people-pleasing. It, it is an addictive drug like crazy, living for the praise of others. It brings a euphoria to our heart like hardly anything else. And it can be such a crushing blow when we don't receive it. Working for the pleasure of others. Last way to work for the wrong reasons is work for man or work for the glory of man. If you work for your own glory, it will crush you. Why do you do what you do? Are you working to get your validation from other people? Much of the work we do, much of the work the world does, I, I'm working to validate my significance. I want others to val validate my value and worth. You're always searching for it. You're fishing for it. Affirm me, affirm me, affirm me. My work matters, my work matters, my work matters. Or if it doesn't matter, you want it to matter. You try to get another job, do whatever you can to find it. You want the pleasure of the praise of the masses. Work becomes the way to scratch my itch in the search for significance. I'm going to work harder than anybody else. So I will toil. I'll put more effort. I'll work harder. All for the pat on the back. I matter. It's subtle. But our heart clings to those sorts of praises. It fills us. And there's a right way to receive those sorts of praises. But this is the wrong way to work. And it's rampant. And it sneaks up into my heart. For the non-believer, this is where a majority of identity comes from. Hard work. This is, I want to find validation, and I want others to validate me. Here's the deal. There's a bigger glory than ourselves. We know that in our mind. There's, there's something bigger than receiving glory for us. There is a superior glory in this world to discover. A world that's so much, uh, a glory that's so much better, so much more profound, so much larger than us. And it's glory that's seen in the face of Christ Jesus. And here's how the gospel changes things. When you see that the cross is primarily about the glory of Jesus and not about your glory, it turns your world upside down. Because there's a message of the cross out there. And, and certainly, if you're created in the image of God, you are valuable. And we should fight for the dignity of human life in every way that we possibly can, both in the womb and out of the womb. Christians should be the foremost advocates for life. But the cross, hear me loud and clear, is not God's final stamp of approval on your value. It is not. It is not. It is God's stamp of approval of your sinfulness before him. You don't measure up. You're not that great. But here's what the cross, it doesn't leave us there. I want to fight for, if you get this, this is a deeper joy than you can find from precious moments joys. 
There's precious, precious moments, joys that are that small that make you happy for a day and leave you. If you get this, this is why I love the songs that we sing because it presses for a deeper joy. The cross is where we see the value of Jesus. The cross is where we see the love of the Father. The cross is where we see the worth of God. And when we turn it into a way to find value and worth for ourselves, we miss the value and the worth of God. God has loved us when we deserved a judgment like the cross. He loved us and sent His Son to die for us anyway. He's worthy. He's worth it. He is glorious. He is loving. Rather than the inverted way of the American, American way, which is, I'm glorious, I'm value, I'm beautiful, and I need to find somebody to validate my worth. And we seek after that like crazy and then just say, oh, go to God and he'll show you how valuable and worthy and blah, 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 blah. Forget your value and worth and get lost in his value and worth. That's the glory of the gospel. Not going around trying to find significance any way I can and finally God will validate me. No, get lost in a superior worth and a superior value. I'm about... Jesus' value. I don't have to think about I'm not a worm in the mud. I'm too busy thinking about how valuable Jesus is. So it's not about our value and worth. It's about being lost in a glory of another. And if we understand the gospel of Jesus, that it's about His value, His worth, His glory, then this is going to transform the way you go to work tomorrow morning. It's gonna, it's tra- it will transform your motive behind what, why you do what you do, and for me as well. And it's ongoing to further, degre- further degrees and greater degrees the longer we walk with Jesus. If we are blown away and in awe with the glory of another, and if we can get past our own glory and see this glory and stand in awe, this is how we'll begin to live when it comes to work. The superior way. Work For the glory of Jesus. Verse 5 says this. We are to work with fear and trembling. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Work with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Who are you serving? Your master or the master behind the master? Employee. Who are you working for? What's the point? Working for Jesus. Verse 6 says that we are a bondservant of Christ. We've already read a passage that says we are not our own. Our life is not about a search for our validation or a pat on the back from anybody. We are finally free from living with the suicidal tyranny of people-pleasing. Freedom from that. We get to live for the glory and the honor of God now. We don't have to live for everybody else to just please as many people as we possibly can. And I don't know about you, I like when people are happy with me. I'm really rather uncomfortable when people don't like me, to be honest. I mean, I don't know if there's anybody that's not a, you know, just a complete jerk that's like, yeah, I I really like when people hate me. I mean, goodness. Okay, that's kind of dark and grim. So that's not the opposite. But the point is, my going home is not dependent upon me getting affirmation from everybody else. This is hard for me to remember when I preach a dud, because preacher, preachers know this. You like get done, you're like, oh my gosh, I want to crawl in a hole. That sucked. You know? Like, I hope nobody talks to me and nobody looks at me, because that was awful. Okay? I mean, you feel that, right? And getting to the point 
where I'm not looking for Jordan like, please validate me, please validate me. Was it okay? It wasn't as bad as I think, right? Uh, blah, blah, blah. It's being at peace that my, my joy is not determined upon whether or not you guys think I'm an awesome preacher or not. Truly. Uh, so, we're freed from that tyranny if we are working for the glory of another. And this is also seen in verse 7. It says that we are to render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. We're not working for our glory. We're working for the Lord, for His glory and honor. It turns work upside down from this fallen pursuit of just, just ugh, worship me to everything I do, whatever I eat, drink, or do, I want to do all to the glory of God. All of my work is for the master behind the master. If I have a jerk boss that's not a whole lot like Christ, who cares? I'm working for Christ. If I have to submit to somebody who is awful, who cares? I love Jesus and I'm working for him. If my boss only knows how to get the worst out of me and not the best, who cares? I'm working for Jesus. This idea transforms work. All of us have probably said something like this about the work that we do vocationally. I just want to make a difference. Who said that? Anybody said that before? Okay, Michelle, teacher. She's making a difference. Just want to make a difference. Anybody else? You want your work to matter? Let's just, okay, we want our work to matter. We really do. I want to make a difference. You ever thought this? But what I do just doesn't matter. Been there? Have you done such menial, mundane work? It just feels like there is literally no point. I remember I had three months off from pastoral ministry a couple years ago in a transition from a church, and I was working at Wynn Nelson Plumbing, and it was during inventory time, which is awful, absolutely awful. And I remember putting straws in pipes because you have to count pipes, and what you do is you put a straw in each pipe, and then when every pipe has a straw, you take out the straws, and then you count the straws, and then you know how many pipes there are because it's like a 3D image with, with PVC pipe. It like all blends together, and you're like, I think I see an elephant in there. Um, <laughs> Uh, it just all blends together, and so you put straws in there. And it felt so pointless. It just felt, sometimes the work that we do, okay, stay-at-home mom, when you're changing yet another diaper, and you're folding the laundry. I saw a video this week. It's kind of comedic online. Uh, the guy talks about to his wife. His wife comes home. She's stressed, and he's like, hey, let me just tell you something. Every single day, I pile laundry in this white basket, and the next morning, magically, it appears folded in the bedroom. I have no idea how it works. And look at this tray in the kitchen and the living room. I just put stuff all over it, and the next morning, it's magically gone. Don't worry about it. And this wife is just like, you know, and obviously she's doing all of that, okay? Uh, for no appreciation whatsoever. The guy's like, it's just a miracle. In the end, she finally leaves, and he's like, she must have just sat on the desk all night long. That, she just disappeared. And um, I'm like, no, she left you, buddy. Um, but you may have been there where you feel like the monotony, the routine, the normal, just average, ordinary life that you live, it just doesn't matter. And you just wish you had work that mattered more. The majority of Americans are in that situation. I think it was Ashton Kutcher who said, I just wish I could mow my yard without having any paparazzi around. And I was thinking, buddy, you want my life. 
I mow all the time. I've never once seen paparazzi. <laughs> and here is somebody who has a life that people would look at and say, oh, look at the value of that, the significance of that, the lives that he touches and what he does. And he wants the opposite. We all seem to have the shift of what we think matters. But if we're working for Jesus, if we're working for him, there's nothing mundane. There's nothing overlooked. You may not get the attention of the world, but you have the attention of heaven. For the Christian, there's nothing that's just ordinary. And we've got to lose this idea to live an extraordinary life, to live a life of value. It, it, it means that more people know me. And I've explained my heart issue. We have God. We have his reconciling work with us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is this monumental activity of God in the past, and so often we get caught up in our weakness and our failings in the past. So let us look to the cross and get a better perspective on the present. Our sins are forgiven. I texted somebody this week who confessed sin to me. They texted me and said, I need to confess this to you, and I texted back, because of Jesus, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. And when you fail again, I'll text you the same thing. Your sins are forgiven. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus tells the woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more. And then when she sinned again, she needed to hear the, next th the same thing. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Okay, this is the truth that's in our past. Your sins are forgiven. So by God's grace, a proper perspective on time, we, we can start to have because we're not paralyzed in the moment based on our failings yesterday our failings last week or a year ago or six years ago or that past relationship that was awful or that past fill-in-the-blank that was terrible. We don't get trapped there because we have bigger events in the past. The cross and eternity passed before the foundation of the world. Powerful, powerful events that can give us a better perspective. Um, but the, the other thing that, that traps people in the past is not necessarily sins that we've committed, but what traps people in the past is sins that have been committed against us. And that can trap us in the past. It's not necessarily the sin that I've done or committed to other people. I feel forgiveness for that. And, and every day I need to be reminded of the forgiveness that I found in Christ. But, but I've been, whoever you are, sinned against. And that's what traps me in the past. Often people who have been sexually abused, both men and women, uh, feel the shame of that even though they have never, they did not commit that sin. That was not a sin of theirs. They feel the shame of being sinned against for the rest of their lives. Okay? Or a neglectful parent or neglectful parents. Those parents sinning against children can have an impact that affects the ch child for the rest of their life. And often what happens when we think about the past, what happens when people think about the past, they get paralyzed based on the sins that were committed against them. Okay? So shame can exist. Uh, Feelings of, uh, okay, uh, why did somebody abuse me this way? I didn't, I, this should not have happened. And in the cross, we can have, if you have been sinned against greatly, we can have hope knowing that God knows. Like those sins committed against you, okay, say they were horrific sins, unspeakable things that you've buried deep within your mind and your heart that you don't want to talk about, you don't want to uncover. And every time you think about it, 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 it begins to bring tears to you. You just can't even emotionally handle it. Know this. God was not absent. He knows. And He's faithful to you even now. He wasn't ambivalent. He's storing up wrath 
about the sins that were committed against you. And the two ways in which wrath gets poured out on people is on the cross or in hell. And I promise those sins committed against you will not go unpunished. They simply will not. And he is patient and caring and loving for you, even right now, having me speak these words over to you, over you, that he loves you and he's with you. And as Jesus cried with Mary and with Martha over the death of Lazarus, Jesus wept, even though he knew what he was about to do. Jesus has the ability, knowing and walking in this world, suffering as we suffer, he knows how to sympathize with you. And so we know as Christians we can get a better perspective on time and not be trapped in the moment based on sins committed against us in the past. There is freedom for you. And so we can make the best use of time because we're not trapped in the past. We're just simply not trapped in the past. And then if you need to remind yourself every day, which you, ought, you will, we'll have to remind ourselves, okay, God, I don't have to be trapped in the past. You've taken care of that for me, and you will take care of those sins that have been committed against me. I can trust you as my Heavenly Father who cares. I don't have to be trapped in the past. So the Christian perspective on time, uh, when it comes to the past, helps us in the present because we don't have to be paralyzed from past sins that we've committed or past sins that were committed against us. But it's not only the Christian's past, it's the Christian's future often that paralyzes us. And here's where God's, uh, God's grace and God's power and God's sovereignty can help us with the future. Our future is promised. My salvation is secure. So I don't have to live in fear today. If Christ Jesus has forever and eternally brought pleasure to the Heavenly Father on my behalf, then by God's grace I can know that I am secure with my Heavenly Father. I am secure as Jesus is. What do I have to fear? If the pleasure of God rests upon us as sons and daughters, what am I trying to attain from Him? What am I trying to gain by fearing that I may not measure up tomorrow? We already know we won't measure up tomorrow. Fortunately, Jesus did for us. When we have our future promised and secure, it gives us unbelievable freedom and power to be all here. Jim Elliott said, wherever you are, he was a missionary, wherever you are, be all here. Be all there. Now, I've got to remind myself of that regularly because often, even with Ritalin, I'm here and there and not here focus. Okay? I'm here. I want to be present. Okay? Christian perspective on time helps us when we know our eternity past is taken care of, and that God has been for us and has forgiven us and cleansed us and taken away the shame. When we know our future is secure, we are finally free to live with wisdom right now. We know the days are evil, which is what it says in our passage. The days are evil out here, but by God's grace, Christians live with wisdom in the present. We make the best use of time. Well, how can we know what the best use of time is? What do we mean, make the best use of time? What is the best use of Sunday right now or Monday? What's going to be the best use of my time tomorrow? Maybe this afternoon. Do I nap? Do I, what, what is the best? Do I, what, I mean, I'm going to preach at 1 o'clock at another church in Marion today. I'm looking forward to that. Um, what, what do I do with my time to make the best use of time? It's a great question. Here's what the passage says. What is the best use of time? Verse 17, look at it. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If we're to live with wisdom, then we need to understand what the will of the Lord is. If, we're, if we are going to make the best use of, use of time, we need to understand what God's will is. Now, we're going to look at three passages. Somebody turn to 1 Corinthians 10.31, and you're going to read that for me. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Tell me when you got it. But don't read it yet. Just tell me you got it. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Okay, Kathy's got it. We're going to talk about God's will. and We're going to talk about His general will. And this is God's general will for every believer in this room. Okay, if you ever wondered, what's God's will for me? What am I supposed to do after college? What am I supposed to do when I retire? What am I supposed to do? It's funny, those that are graduating high school and graduating college, uh, you get to the exact same spot when you get to retirement because you realize in retirement, like, what am I going to do? I'm just going to, like... You got to do something, right? Because everybody's retiring younger and younger. Like my dad and my mother, they both work for the state. I love them, but uh, they've retired young, very young, because of the state of Illinois. Uh, benefit to them, not to us. Uh, but um, but my parents, they retired early. And they're having to find things to do, and it can be somewhat nerve-wracking when you're going into retirement. In the same way, it is when you graduate high school or when you graduate college. The question of what what am I going to do? What is God's will? Am I alone? Just raise your hand if you have ever asked the question, God, what is your will for me? Okay. Raise your hand if you've asked that about 10 billion times. Okay. Sometimes it just feels so elusive because we're wanting to know specific, God specific. I want your specific will. Kathy, go ahead and read, read 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Okay, there's God's will for you. Tomorrow, right now, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's God's will. It's general for everybody, but the Holy Spirit comes and makes it specific. Okay, tomorrow, I'm going to wake up in a different home tomorrow morning, wake up in a different home than you will. Jordan and I will wake up at 606 Center Street, Carterville, Illinois. I'm going to wake up, I'm going to have my coffee, I'm going to go in, do my thing, I always do, Bible. Pray, read, waste time on the internet, okay, and try to not do that. Actually, I read the news in the morning. That that's, can be helpful. Read the news. Uh, and then I go to breakfast with my buddy uh, on Monday morning, and my day is going to look different than yours tomorrow, okay? So God is going to take that verse that's very general for everybody, whatever you eat, drink, or do, do all to the glory of God, and Holy Spirit tomorrow is going to make it very specific, Okay, I want to glorify God tomorrow morning when I wake up, when I go to breakfast, when I'm driving, when I'm le I, I want to live to God's glory. I want Him honored. I want Him worshipped. So God takes the general will, the Holy Spirit takes the general will given to everybody in this room, and will make it very specific to me tomorrow. And He'll do that for you as well. Okay, another passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Go ahead and flip there, and I'm just going to read these two passages. This is very, very general for every Christian, but also very specific. For this is the will of God. Ears perk up. Heart starts to beat faster. Mind begins to start spinning. Okay, what is it? What is it? What is it? This is God's will for you, your sanctification. Well, that's interesting. That's very specific. God's will for you is to grow in Christ-likeness. Ding, 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 ding. 
Awesome. Light bulbs begin to go off. Like, wait a second. That's what God wants for me today? Yes. The Holy Spirit comes and makes it very specific. You know why? Because each of us, the Holy Spirit is beginning to convict of other sin because the bondage of sin we're continuing to be redeemed out of. And so the specific areas of our life that we need to grow in godliness, the Holy Spirit is very specifically pointing those out to you. So tomorrow, God's will for you, the rest of the day for you today is become more Christ-like by God's grace. Very simple, yet unbelievably profound, is it not? Okay, I'm hoping, yeah, is it, is it not? Like, yes, it is simple, but so profound. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, here's what it says. Thanks again, Apostle Paul, making it so simple. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's a lifetime of work right there. Only Christ has done that perfectly, thankfully, on our behalf. Rejoice always. God, when I'm not rejoicing tomorrow, I know it's your will right now that I would be rejoicing. Help my heart to rejoice. I don't want to just clench my fist and clench my teeth. So tomorrow, help me to rejoice. Holy Spirit, work in me. I want to rejoice and thank you for your grace to me today. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So we need to understand what the will of the Lord is. That's, that's a lifetime of perfect purpose ahead of you. So if we're to walk in wisdom, we're to know what God's will is, and we're by grace beginning to walk that out. So grow in Christ's likeness. Wisdom. We walk in wisdom. This is wise living. Understanding what the will of the Lord is and making our best use of time. Holy Spirit, help me to do this. Keeping in mind our justification, by the way, because we will fall short every single day at this. And yet by God's grace, we have the favor of God because of what Christ has done for us. He did all that. He lived wisely. He made every... It made, he made perfect opportunity of every moment of every day. He did this perfectly on our behalf. He did the will of the Lord perfectly every single day. By God's grace, we have that same righteousness counted as ours. This is wise living. Second part, so first, first part is live wisely. We understand, we make the best use of time and understand what the Lord, will of the Lord is. Part two of the passage begins talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now turn back to chapter 5. Here's what it says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled up with the Spirit. This is what we are to do. We are to be filled with the Spirit. So one, walk with wisdom, and then two, uh, to, Christians are to be walking, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the example to the negative that's used is drunkenness. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. This is not a passage primarily upon drunkenness. Its whole point is this. When you are drunk, when you're intoxicated, your sight is affected. Anybody been drunk before? You fakers. Okay. You've been drunk before. Your sight's affected. Your emotions are affected, right? You're either, uh, you know, in tears or you're ready to fight anyone, right? Or you're calling or texting or whatever it is, and it's... Not good. You do th unspeakable things, okay? When you're drunk, when you're inebriated, it's just it's bad. Your thinking is affected. Your memory is affected. Everything is affected. And the Bible is going to say, hey, don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit because when you're feel filled with the Spirit, everything is affected in your life. When you're working in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's, you, you see differently, you hear differently, you think differently. It affects all aspects of your life, not just some of your life. So be filled with with the Holy Spirit. Now, real quick, so we don't have time to talk about that. I was going to talk about 
drinking and drunkenness and all of that. And just real quick, it's okay to drink. Don't get drunk. All right, the scriptures over and over again talking about the blessing of wine, and God even commands his people in the Old Testament to drink strong drink. He does not command them to get drunk. So just in a real broad statement, if you have a problem with alcohol, if you've ever been alcoholic, you need to never touch it. Okay, be wise. But if you don't, you're free to drink alcohol. Jesus commanded us to drink wine. It's the one drink he commanded us to drink. And we don't do that. We have grape juice here. But you're free to drink. Drink wisely. Don't be stupid. Okay? So, but the point of this passage is don't be drunk with wine. Instead, be affected in all of your body and all of your physiology by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what John Stott says. Let me get my quotes here. I'm, for the sake of time, I'm skipping some, some things here. I'm, I'm sorry about that, but if you want some of these notes later, you can have them. Uh, here's what John Stott says about this command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But when Paul says to us, be filled with the Spirit, he uses a present imperative, implying that we are to go on being filled. For the fullness of the Spirit is not a once-for-all experience, which we can never lose, but a privilege to be renewed continuously continuously by believing and obedient appropriation. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit once for all. Remember we talked about that? The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. You have the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. Okay, 100% Holy Spirit's never going to leave you, ever. However, the command here is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We have been sealed with the Spirit once for all, but we need to be filled with the Spirit and go on being filled every day and every moment of the day. This is the command. It's a command to be filled with the Spirit. 